Welcome to the podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Tom Weber. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Karen Raphael. Dr. Raphael is a PhD level psychologist and epidemiologist whose work over the last 35 years has focused on the role of psychosocial and stress-related factors in pain. Since 2009, she has held a primary appointment at New York University College of Dentistry, serving as professor in the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Pathology, Radiology, and Medicine. Dr. Raphael's work has included extensive research on multiple facets of pain, including pain epidemiology, translational pain psychophysics, biases in patient reporting and clinical observation, stress and muscle activity, and the role of bruxism in temporal mandibular disorders. Her writings inspired an international consensus committee of orofacial pain experts to reconsider whether bruxism is a disorder requiring treatment. In addition to serving as principal investigator on a dozen grants funded primarily by the NIH, Dr. Raphael has published approximately 100 peer-reviewed manuscripts and has served on numerous editorial boards and grant review committees. Her most recent funded research has examined potential bone-related risk from use of botulinum toxin to treat temporomandibular disorders. But Dr. Raphael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the AAOP podcast. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here, and I thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's really a great opportunity to sort of be able to look back for myself about what I've been doing over the course of these years and to speak to the incredible folks at AOP um, who I think sometimes may say, well, well, where's this person coming from? You know, she's not a dentist. Um, and, you know, maybe I have somewhat different ideas than, than, than some of you were taught. So, um, so it's sort of fun to uh, uh, think about where I've come from versus where many of you have come from and how that explains some of the differences in how we see things. But speaking of where you've come from, I, I'm going to take a guess that most people who go to university to study psychology probably don't do so with the thought that they're going to come out on the other end studying things like temporal mandibular disorders. So. I'd be very interested to hear some of your background and how you ended up in this field. Okay. Well, you know, I finished my, my uh, doctorate in psychology. And yeah, I could have done clinical work. And I love clinical work, but I found that it took really a lot out of me. But as part of training in psychology, you also learn research methodology and statistics. And I found I love that, much to my surprise and decided that I probably, because I had a strength in those areas, really thought maybe I could make a greater contribution and become more of a change agent, so to speak, by focusing on research, but what content area? Um, so, so I ended up going for postdoctoral training at Columbia University that had a program in psychiatric epidemiology, again, related to psychology, psychiatric, Okay, you know, basically the same kind of thing. And epidemiology, which is in chronic disease, is really uh, chronic disease epidemiology is epidemiologic methods about how you infer cause and effect, maybe using as, let me say, uh, uh, dirty data and clean mind. Uh, and I'd like to think that 
uh, I, 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 that's, I say that's the Zen koan of epidemiology, for those of you who know a little bit about Zen koans. Um, so, um, so I was doing postdoctoral training there anyway. Um, I ended up spending three years doing that. I loved it. Um, learning more about causal inference, um, not just using uh, clinical trials, which are sort of easy from a causal inference perspective, but other kinds of research designs, case control studies, um, community-based epide epidemiologic studies, all kinds of weird study designs and figuring out how do you really decide what's cause and effect. Um, and while I was there, and, and while I was there, um, I happened, my mentor was working with a guy that some of you may know, uh, who, who passed away, unfortunately, very, in, in a very, very untimely way in, in 2001, uh, Dr. Joseph Marbach, all right? And he had a reputation as sort of being a bit of a renegade in um, the area of orofacial pain. He didn't always agree with what everybody else uh, thought. And he, he was unusual, and he also had psychoanalytic training. He was maybe the first dentist who had psychoanalytic training. So uh, given the very staid atmosphere of Columbia University at the time, uh, Joe and I used to love to fight and fight really loud. And uh, reading of the minds, we didn't mind arguing. We loved arguing. We didn't mind being controversial. And he would say, based upon his many years of experience in, in doing, in treating patients and, and in doing clinical research uh, and doing both at once, uh, for example, he'd say, uh, you know, people with, you know, uh, chronic DMBs, they don't get better. You know, they're real chronic patients are chronic patients. And, uh, and the most we can hope for is to manage them. And I said, Joe, how do you know that? And he said, I, I, I know that. You know, I have tremendous clinical observation skills. And I said, well, let's gather some data. So and he was always willing to look to the data. So we actually randomly sampled among patients he had ever seen. We found that uh, what Joe's belief system was, based upon his careful clinical observation, that people with chronic TMDs don't get better, didn't match the data. Um, and uh, that's the kind of thing that really made it fun to work together. Um, and that I felt that because I had a different set of skills, and I was also agnostic uh, because I wasn't trained as a dentist. Um, it was sort of fun where I was interested. There's not um, the mushiness of psychology uh, is what makes it intriguing. And sort of the mushiness of chronic pain, all right? It's not like dentistry, the rest of dentistry, as, as, as I'm sure all the AOP members know, that, right? That it's, it's, yeah, it is, yeah. And, and I remember once, I think, hearing Sam Dworkin, who's done, a, I mean, who's uh, emeritus now, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, TMDs, uh, you know, are more like pain, <laughs> any other kind of pain than they are than any, like any area of dentistry. So um, 
anyway, so so I basically had that advantage of um, you know having Joe Moore back bring me into an area that was messy, which is meant I loved it, and and collaborating with him for over a dozen years. Uh, so and meeting a lot of patients, talking with a lot of patients, um, and continuing after his passing to speak to a lot of his patients and other individuals who were uh, ambitious enough to track me down. Um, and, and of course, patients I, I was doing research with because I have a, I'm a human subjects researcher. Um, so uh, it's been quite a, a 35 years uh, was, uh, where I've learned an incredible amount, but I also know how much there is that I still don't know. Um, so you know, my, my, my initial uh, sort of academic interest was even uh, looking at some of the models going back into the 1960s where you'll have people like Dan Laskin um, talking about this uh, psychophysiologic model, some call it, in which you've got this feedback loop where you've got stress, which is, again, an interest of mine from my postdoctoral training uh, that initiates uh, muscle tension and uh, oral habits like bruxism, uh, which leads to TMDs, uh, which itself is a stressor, loops back. And so, you know, what was the evidence for that? It sort of sounded cool to me because it was sort of a way of translating psychological stressors into uh, physiologic manifestations. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say that I really... Uh, although I think that that Dan may have distanced himself from his model uh, independently, um, I, I tried to tease apart what parts of that model might really have some validity. So that that's really where I started, and uh, with Joe Marbach, and really found that uh, it was an area that uh, medically it's medically unexplained. There's no smoke and gun, there's no organic lesions, it's multifactorial, it's kind of like most psychiatric disorders. And not to say it is a psychiatric disorder, but it has that kind of complexity that makes it incredibly intriguing. Okay. So, so that's where I come from. You hit on something there with that messiness and mushiness that, uh, that is so fascinating to me. You know, the complex nature of these chronic pain conditions that don't lend themselves readily to a simple, straightforward explanation. Uh, in the past, has, has led some clinicians to suppose that because this isn't readily, medically explained, well, well, it must be some kind of a psychiatric problem. It must be primarily psychological in nature. This must be psychogenic pain, right? So that, that makes me wonder now, I, I, I sense, I hope that that idea is dying out over time. Uh, but from your perspective as a psychologist, what gives us confidence uh, that, it, that that is not in fact the case? You know, obviously I, unfortunately I can't do a Vulcan mind meld and read my patients' minds. So how do we know that, it, that it's not psychogenic? What evidence has led us away from that old idea? Okay, that old, well, that old idea assumes a mind-body dualism, which I think we have to reject right away. It's not as if 
any of us are, you know, you have this old, if you, if you go to one of these basic um, pain talks, you'll see uh, a model, Descartes' model of pain in which I think their foot is in the fire and it goes straight up into the brain, okay? And we understand now that, you know, one of the filters, you know, pain is an affective experience as well as a motor experience. So it's filtered through um, psychological factors and state and trait. That doesn't mean that it's psychogenic. Unfortunately, psychogenic becomes sort of a wastebasket for things that we can't explain, right? And so we have to be really careful about a psychogenic view, which I think is starting to fade um, and recognize that to the extent that you as a clinician communicate in any subtle way to a patient that their pain is not real, that it's psychogenic because they're seen as synonymous, it's highly stigmatizing, all right? You're essentially... Whether you intend to or not, the patient will perceive that you are blaming her or him. And that may lead to a sort of paradoxical, paradoxical behavior in which the patient may almost overstate their symptoms to, quote unquote, prove that they're real. All right. So that stigmatization builds in um, an overstatement and sort of a... a uh, a way of communicating with a clinician that appears a little off to the clinician, but may actually be initiated inadvertently by the clinician questioning um, whether the pain is real. All right, whether I'm not to say, not to say that there aren't individuals for whom uh, pain serves some secondary purpose or secondary gain. All right, that's a different issue. Um, that may not have been uh, what initiated the pain in the first place, but hey, they may have stumbled across the fact that there is some secondary gain to be involved. Uh, but we also need to remember that comorbidities of all kinds, but especially psychological comorbidities, make it a lot harder to hear what your doc is telling you make it a lot, a lot harder to adhere to a treatment protocol um, and make it more likely that you're going to become a chronic patient. So what uh, an orofacial pain specialist sees in practice is the tip of the orofacial pain iceberg of those people in which psychological factors are overrepresented, right? So we should be careful as clinicians when, uh, now I'm speaking as if I were uh, a TMD or orofacial pain specialist, which obviously I don't have that practice, but in specialty practices, in people who have found their way into specialty orofacial pain practices, those are gonna be the more chronic patients Okay, people who spontaneously remit with the TMD, which is the bulk of individuals, they're going to be less likely to have psychological comorbidities. 
right? So when we talk about what the nature of orofacial pain or TMDs is like, we should be careful in not forgetting that our patient sample is the chronic of the chronic and overrepresents those people with psychological comorbidities, but that doesn't mean that their pain is psychogenic. So is that a little helpful? Um, there, there's something that in epidemiology um, is called, uh, I think there was a paper that came out in the mid 80s called, and it's not intended to be pejorative, uh, but if anybody's really interested, I think it was in 84 by Cohen and Cohen called the clinician's illusion. And the idea there is basically that saying that uh, the distribution of illness for sample and treatment is different than that of the population whoever got the disorder uh, due to a duration-dependent differential probability of being seen in treatment. Now, that's a lot of gobbledygook words, but basically it says that if you have a chronic disorder, you're going to be seen in treatment a lot. And the doctor's uh, perspective of what that disorder is like is going to be heavily influenced by those chronic patients. So uh, a little caution, even the most uh, experienced and hard to see orofacial pain specialists are going to be seeing the patients that have been knocking on the door the loudest that have been having the hardest time getting better and may well uh, be more likely to have psychological comorbidities, but that doesn't mean that that's the cause of their pain. That may be the consequence of their pain. And in fact, I uh, did a family study, of, I think it came out in around 1989, in which we know that depression is familial. And uh, we looked at, and we know that Many people with uh, TMDs have, uh, uh, especially I'm talking mostly about myofascial type TMDs. Uh, we know that uh, they have high rates of depression. So uh, we used a study, we did a study in which we looked at patterns of uh, depression in their family members, selecting groups of people with TMDs with and without depression themselves and another group of controls with and without depression themselves. And we, we looked at all the first degree relatives we could locate and determined whether or not their family members had depression. Now, uh, one would expect, given that depression is familial, that there would be high rates of depression in TMD patients. But if the TMD were a manifestation of their psychological condition, they should have particularly high rates. But if they had low rates of psychiatric disorders in their family members, it would mean that they were having sort of a stress reactive depression, okay? Because it's stressful to live with a chronic pain disorder. And in fact, we found that the TMD patients who had depression were had, had low rates 
of depression in the first-degree relatives. So that indicates that the excess rates of depression that we saw in TMD patients was a consequence of the stress of living with chronic pain. All right, and so there's some data that um, is consistent with the other things that I'm, I'm talking about, uh, which is that we should be careful about assuming a link between the two and, uh, and the nature of the cause-effect relationship can be quite different than what, what, what we first think. That, that is some interesting data. Uh, and also a good example of that cautionary tale you offered about assuming that the slice of patients we happen to see are representative of people with that disorder as a whole. And I, I wonder if that's the source of some of the tension that you mentioned between, uh, for example, Dr. Marbach's clinical observations versus the, uh, the, the data you were able to, to, to cull from populations in some of your work. And, and another area that, that I think highlights some of that tension in some ways is the phenomenon of bruxism, which has been a, a big research focus for you. And uh, in some of your earlier work on bruxism, uh, contributed to the formation of a new international consensus about that. Uh, so if you could please share with us some of those uh, bruxism findings and how that led to a change in our perspective. Uh, okay. Well, you know, it, that probably, it actually goes back to some early work um, in which, uh, that I did with Joe Marbach, uh, probably the first paper we published together, in which he, didn't, he, he had clear belief systems, and I was the agnostic. And I said, I want to see what the data have to tell us. Um, but we asked a group of TMD patients um, about uh, whether they bruxed, and we defined it, and we separated nighttime and daytime. And we also asked them how they found out or how that they knew that they bruxed. And amazingly, the majority of the TMD patients knew that they bruxed because their oral facial pain specialists or their dentist told them that they bruxed. So you've got this incredible tautology going on. So if the dentist believes this is to be true, or the orofacial pain specialist believes this to be true because they have been taught that this is the case, they tell their patients who don't know what they're doing while they're sleeping, all right? And um, then, you know, they tell the next specialist they see that they bruxed. And so when you do a study and you ask using self-report about uh, whether or not uh, there's, a, whether there are high rates of bruxism in TMD patients, you're gonna find self-reports of very high rates. So we start with that, but then we start to question about, well, where is that information coming from? And I do know that there are many uh, specialists who believe that you can look at tooth wear and make inferences about whether or not a patient engages in bruxism, or at least in sleep bruxism or tooth grinding when you look at wear patterns. But recognize, number one, that that is an historical marker. Number two, that it can be caused by a variety of factors other than bruxism, probably much more related to diet and um, 
Everybody used to think I broxed because I used to drink diet soda when I was a kid, all right? And acetic liquids, especially if you leave it in your mouth for a long time, do a number on your enamel. Um, so um, it's if you're looking for it and you're looking for toothware, um, you might think that that has uh, something to do with what's uh, going on with your patients. But we did a study in which we took um, uh, molds of uh, gold-plated molds, which are very high cast, uh, very high uh, um, resolution. And we had a group of uh, dental faculty. This is when uh, I was with Joe Marbeck in uh, New Jersey Dental School. Um, and had them rate whether or not the individuals engaged in bruxism, sleep bruxism in particular, and how confident they were that they did that. And six months later, unknown to them, although we had to tell them later, we asked them to rate the same group of impressions. And we found that not only was there poor agreement no, no greater than one would expect by chance among these different uh, dental faculty on whether or not the individual is broxed. They didn't, the individual clinicians didn't even agree with themselves over the course of time. Um, and uh, it had nothing to do with how confident they were about some, a few clinicians would say, well, I really don't know. But plenty of clinicians said, say, oh, this is definitely bruxism. They were no more likely to agree with themselves over time uh, based upon their confidence, whether the confidence was high or low. So we started to really question, or I started to really question, you know, how can we self-report? How can we use clinical evaluations by experts, okay, if the experts don't even agree with themselves or each other. Um, and so that led me eventually to say, you know, we, I did another study which I used uh, a different method, which I won't get into right now, but eventually came down to the point that the best way to really make sense of this is by doing um, polysomnography studies. All right. You, uh, for those of you who are less familiar with these studies, uh, there, uh, there are ambulatory methods for doing, looking at uh, masticatory muscle activity during sleep, but in, they can also be done in the sleep lab where you have uh, audiovisual monitoring. And uh, we gathered a group of. Uh, individuals uh, who had uh, a myofascial TMD, a group of demographically matched controls, and they were all women to sort of reduce some of the heterogeneity uh, that, that might otherwise occur. Um, and uh, we did not tell them that the purpose of the study was to determine whether or not they bruxed because that would have biased our sample. And luckily, being in New York City, um, it's really a good transportation uh, center. And uh, we basically gave them an acclimation night. And then the second night, 
Uh, we hooked up uh, EMG electrodes in a standard way that they do for sleep studies, as well as some additional electrodes um, on their masticatory muscles. And then we had a group of PhD level, I think they happened to be psychologists, but they were used to uh, scoring uh, sleep lab studies. And they had to sit there with these EMG recordings, you know, with his, you know seven to eight hours of sleep and the audiovisual records. And uh, our collaborator at that point is a well-known expert in sleep bruxism, Gilles Lavigne um, from Montreal. And uh, we uh, calibrated to reliability standard with his lab. And he said he could never in the cold of Montreal uh, get the kind of sample that we were able to recruit in New York. Uh, What's and, your sample size? Do you remember roughly? Oh, geez. Oh, you really got me there. I'm thinking it was somewhere, uh, was it 60 something per group? Something around that. Okay, I'd have to pull it out to be sure. That, that's okay. It, it, was yeah. a, it was a good sized sample, though. That is for a sleep study. That's an enormous sample, all right? Because, again, they had to come back for two nights, all right? Obviously, we paid them. Thank you, NIH. Um, <laughs> One thing I've really liked about that study, I, I know one of, one of the papers that was published from this was the 2012 uh, Journal of the American Dental Association yes. paper, correct? Yeah, that's I, right. I really liked the fact that there were two nights, kind of an acclimation night and then a second night uh, where the data was obtained. That, that just right. seemed to make a lot of sense intuitively because I, I think sleeping in a sleep lab is kind of a foreign environment. We give them a night to get used to it. So uh, I thought that was a, a pretty neat aspect of that. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people worry about that. So that's what we did. And, uh, you know, and I remember everybody saying, I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep in a sleep lab. Everybody slept fine, you know. It's not a problem. Uh, it's funny if you're tired enough, you'll sleep in a sleep lab, and by the time they hook you up and everything, yeah, the TV's there, but you're probably even too tired to watch the TV. So people do sleep in a sleep lab. Amazingly, even with all these electrodes on your face and they're in, they're in your hair, and your hair's all gummed up, you sleep anyway. All right. As long as the technicians aren't sleeping, everything's good. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, and these technicians are trained, you know, they, they're trained for overnight. And gee, if, uh, you know, they're trained that if the, the patient needs, up, needs to get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, they, you know, stop the recording. Uh, and uh, what we didn't expect, though, was that um, because there are other motor activities that happen during sleep, uh, there's a tremendous advantage to have in the audiovisual recording because, you know, there's sleep talking. There's the fact that you have to get up and use the bathroom. Uh, there's other kinds of, you know, twisting and turning motions that can cause what looks like elevation in your masticatory muscle activity, but it's not. And so we had, you know, some of these complicated studies it could take 24 hours to score eight hours of a sleep study to determine whether or not uh, or how many times people were engaging in uh, sleep bruxism episodes, which are defined uh, by Gilles Lavigne uh, to be these uh, patterns of rhythmic masticatory muscle activities 
that did or did not uh, get accompanied by grinding sounds. So we scored all these things in all these different ways. And amazingly, and again, I wasn't sure what we would find. I kind of assumed still that we might find higher rates of bruxism. Uh, but we found that the rates were virtually identical in the two groups, somewhere around 10, 11%. And if anything, those individuals who had the highest pain levels were less likely to engage in sleep bruxism. So if you think about, you know, that old uh, psychophysiologic model about stress and pain, uh, and then think about uh, Jim Lund had a different model, uh, which would say just the opposite, uh, which is your pain adaptation model, which says that bottom line, what it really says is if something hurts, you avoid using it. If you sprain your ankle, you don't purposely pound on it. All right. So it seemed from these data that, that things were more consistent with the Lund model, right? The more it hurt, the less you bruxed. And there were overall no differences between your TMD cases and your controls. Uh, but again, if you ask these patients whether they ground their teeth at night, that, we found the same thing that everybody else found. They said that they ground their teeth a lot more. All right, so we had that sort of little validity check to show that we could still replicate what everybody else did, but then if we use sort of the state-of-the-art methods, we'd find something different. Um, and so how you measure a phenomenon really, really matters, okay? So, you know, asking somebody whether they uh, grind their teeth at night, uh, really doesn't correspond. We published other studies on this that doesn't correspond with your actual sleep bruxism activity with a possible exception of a, a, maybe a minor correspondence for people who were told by their sleep partners that they grind their teeth, especially if they were controls, okay? Because there would be no reason for their, the people without facial pain to be, uh, you know, uh, cueing their sleep partners into checking whether or not they engaged in grinding noises during the sleep. So, you know, generally speaking, you know, people don't know, but then when you start looking at better data using the classic definitions of sleep bruxism as developed by, uh, which were research definitions uh, developed by Levine and colleagues in Montreal, uh, we don't find evidence for elevated rates of sleep bruxism. Let me just back for one second on this. Um, you know, she agreed to work with me um, on this project with an understanding that I would want to calibrate um, uh, to be consistent with his lab. But I remembered uh, going to a, a meeting on uh, bruxism that was held in Capri. And maybe that's why I remember it, because it was held in Capri, because that's not your, your typical you know, uh, place for a conference. But, but this is a very small summer school, uh, as they call it, for, held by the Journal of Oral Rehabilitation. And they hold some very unique educational seminars. And I remember that uh, Gilles 
was presenting and was presenting the definition for um, sleep bruxism as established by the um, um, International Association for Sleep Disorders. And he developed his criteria, research criteria involving these episodes of uh, uh, rhythmic masticatory muscle activity to best correspond to this uh, definition of, uh, of, of um, uh, sleep bruxism as a sleep disorder defined by this group. When he, let me see if I have this, when he gave out the um, definition or posted on the screen the definition of um, of what um, sleep bruxism was, it was, you know, uh, grinding or clenching the teeth during the night and accompanied by such factors as excessive tooth wear, uh, pain on waking, blah, 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 a bunch of symptoms. So I remember raising my hand and saying, but wait a minute, that's tautological. Once again, you're not talking about the behavior, but you're talking about the behavior in combination with symptoms is used to define sleep bruxism as a sleep disorder. All right, is it a behavior? or is it a disorder? You're defining it as a behavior accompanied by symptoms. So you're making it into a disorder by requiring that it has these pathological symptoms. And Jill, who's very, very open, says, hmm, gee, you're right about that. And, and it was, again, the advantage of being an outsider. Uh, I was dumb enough and brave enough at the same time to, to sort of question that. So um, basically, uh, you know, that taught me that, um, you know, it really helps to have an outsider's perspective on these things. And that at that point, um, once we looked at the pure behavior, removing any assumption of bruxism, of being associated, with, uh, with uh, orofacial health problems, we didn't find a relationship. Uh, so then uh, just a couple of years later, um, again, there was still this, there's been this incredible link between, especially internationally, between bruxism and TMDs, right? Uh, many of the uh, centers or departments in international um, dental schools combined the study of uh, and treatment of bruxism and TMDs, right? Just incredibly linked, right? But I had the advantage of uh, Frank Lobizo, who um, is uh, an expert in orofacial pain, um, uh, from the Netherlands, uh, came to do a sabbatical with me for a year. And we started to talk 
about the existing criteria. And I started to argue with him about some of the initial conceptualizations and how there was a mix of uh, oral health problems with the definition of the behavior and that don't we need to step back and look at the behavior itself and determine whether or not it's associated with oral health problems. And we don't know that yet if we define them as only in combination with one another. And um, after much discussion, uh, he did agree with me and we spent, this is probably, I think this had to go to through three or four rewrites before we finally got this paper accepted because it really went against the grain of the belief system. Um, and people were like saying, this is ridiculous. No, 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 no. You can't just say it's a behavior. And I said, no, we're not saying it's just a behavior, but, we, but so far we only know it's a behavior. And it may be a risk factor for oral health outcomes. I don't think anybody's saying that if you Brox, you definitely end up with a TMD. But maybe it increases your risk, especially when combined with other risk factors. All right. So that, that remains something to be tested. That seems to that difference you're mentioning seems to come out prominently in, and this may be the the paper that you were referring to. There was a a 2018 paper uh, that Dr. Lobizo and you were co-authors of, among other colleagues, uh, that yes. now describes bruxism not as a disorder, but uses the term activity, that sleep bruxism and awake bruxism are activities uh, rather than disorders. That's quite a recharacterization. It's a, a bit yes. of a paradigm shift. Yeah, so what happened was, yeah, that that basically was a, I had a paper that I think came out with Frank and another colleague of mine, um, um, Vivian Santiago from NYU. Three of us wrote a paper that appeared in the Journal of Rural Re Rehabilitation, I think two years before that. And based upon that, uh, this international consensus committee on uh, Bruxism convened. And basically they agreed with what I said two years earlier, which was really nice. Except one of the things we emphasized which is really frustrating, I think, is that we don't know. It may be something like blood pressure that, you know, it's sort of continuous, but for clinical purposes, we, uh, you know, uh, sort of say, well, well, here's a cut point that's useful, at which point uh, perhaps uh, we increase risk of all cardiovascular problems and we want to start to intervene or just like um, like uh, bone density. Yeah, it's a continuously distributed kind of, uh, of uh, characteristic, but after it crosses a certain line, we say, yeah, maybe we need to intervene. Bruxism may be something like that, but we don't know where that cut point is yet. But so until we do... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, excuse me. I was just going to say that cut point, of course, would be very different among individuals and among individuals of different uh, health backgrounds, right? Uh, so Absolutely. And among point. individuals who have, who have other different other cofactors. Because one of the things as an epidemiologist that you see about 
risk factors, things that increase risk but don't guarantee it, is that they often interact with other factors, right? So they may essentially you'd be looking at higher order kind of statistical interactions. Well, if you have this and that and this and that and put all these things together, then you can really do a pretty good prediction, okay? So you can use higher order statistical modeling to sort of replicate and make better predictions about what might happen at an individual level. But it moves away from that question of how do we treat bruxism because we don't have a really good way of doing that, all right? And just saying, should we be treating bruxism, right? And the evidence, and actually uh, Frank and uh, his Italian colleague, um, uh, Danielle Manfredini, have done a number of excellent reviews in which they've shown that for a number of oral health outcomes, the relationship that you see between bruxism and that oral health outcome depends upon how you measure it. And the better the measurement, the weaker the relationship. Very interesting. Yes. You know, there was some other data that came from that same uh, group of patients that went through the PSG study. Yes. Those cases and controls yielded some data, for example, uh, not only on bruxism, but also on background EMG activity. Uh, can right. you speak to that a little bit? What were some of those findings? Right. Now, this was something that I didn't expect, right? Um, but again, I, I want to be agnostic. And, and I will also be really honest with you, when you spend years collecting data, you sort of say, well, okay, what, what other stories do the data tell beside the main story that we were funded for? And so we said, well, well, let's see what's happening. You know, there's this definition that was created by Gilles Lavigne for research purposes um, to match a clinical definition that we think was confounded uh, with, uh, with oral health outcomes. Um, so why don't we just look at masticatory muscle activity, not specifically focusing on bruxism, but in fact, focusing on the non-bruxism periods, right? And much to our surprise, and I couldn't make these data go away, very honestly, because whenever, whenever you find something that you don't at least have other people hypothesizing about, you have to make sure that you didn't just code the data wrong or something like that. We couldn't make these effects go away, all right? They were pretty strong. What we found is that uh, levels of EMG activity, electromyographic activity, during non-bruxism periods were higher in the TMD patients than the controls. That's sort of what you might think of as like a resting state EMG. Um, and again, it, it was of the magnitude that's similar to one might expect. Uh, I mean, I'm not an EMG expert, but I've been told by colleagues who, who uh, and collaborators who, who are, and it's about the same kind of elevation as you might get from mild tooth to tooth contact. All right, so you're not talking about big elevations. It's sort of the way I think about it is as somebody who used to, when I was younger, do weightlifting. Uh, the difference between doing really a few reps of, with really high weights 
okay, which could be extremely difficult, but can make your muscles sore, you know, get a, a delayed onset uh, mu muscle soreness, or you could do hundreds of low weight um, curls with involving those same muscles. Well, maybe not curls, but um, so the idea is that it kind of makes sense if you think back to Lund's model that if it hurts a lot, you're not going to engage those muscles. But if you're only engaging those muscles a little bit, and you're doing it all night long, right, maybe there's a cumulative delayed, uh, delayed onset uh, muscle pain that happens. And that's what our data suggests. So there aren't these bigger elevations that we see that characterize sleep bruxism classically defined, but there still may be something else that's going on that does relate to masticatory muscle activity, but very mild activity over much longer periods, like over the entire night. Okay, so those were sort of surprise data. I hope that somebody else will replicate, okay, because this was a post hoc finding. It was a very strong finding, which makes it less likely to be due to chance. Um, but uh, I think that it is, again, a potential paradigm shift in the way we think about masticatory muscle activity and orofacial pain that it may not be bruxism per se, but just mild elevations in activity over long periods. Okay. This next question may be a, a, a very big picture, high level kind of a question, and it's not one that can be answered based on that, that data. But you know, naturally you start to wonder why? Why would these individuals ha show that difference and have this, this, this stark uh, contrast between the, the pain and the non-pain groups in their background EMG activity? Are, are you aware of any uh, any directions being taken in research uh, that, that could potentially provide some answers or, or provide understanding of that? I am not, all right? However, um, it may be, you know, chance variation, okay, that some people have higher levels of EMG activity because one of the very effective, uh, we haven't really talked about interventions in general, but you know, we're not, we haven't come really far in terms of treatment of TMDs, in my opinion. Uh, but we do know that the relaxation response is a very powerful thing. And uh, if you can uh, remind people to, you know, the simple adage of lips together, teeth apart, those kinds of things, or engaging in syst systematic uh, relaxation or um, what do we call it, the, the uh, mindfulness meditation kinds of things where people learn to just relax muscles. Those can be incredibly helpful, okay? And there's evidence to support that. And I do recommend to individuals that there's really no risk associated with those kinds of interventions. They can be done on their own. They can be done uh, with a psychologist. Um, 
oral facial pain specialists might themselves learn how to train people in those kinds of relaxation techniques. Uh, because to the extent that we can, I mean, yeah, there have been biofeedback studies where they've tried to do that too, but they tend not to generalize so well because they're done in these highly specialized settings. But if one can invoke a relaxation response and just reduce that level of EMG activity a little, let's assume even that it's just, you know, some people tend to have somewhat tighter masticatory muscles than others, Okay. I'm just saying that as a, as a sort of a null hypothesis, right? I don't know whether there's something about the anatomy that makes people at, uh, some people at greater risk than others. Uh, there is, I know, some data that, that again, uh, women are much more likely at uh, both in community samples that we've done as well as in care-seeking samples to uh, meet uh, diagnostic criteria for particularly myofascial-type TMDs. Uh, there may be something about uh, the way uh, the the masticatory system uh, in women versus men that uh, makes I don't know. Again, we just studied women, but there may, you know it's a hypothesis that could be tested about whether there are male female differences in uh, masticatory muscle activity over the course of the night. It sounds like there are there are several directions that could be taken to try to investigate what some of the driving factors behind that difference are. Um, right. You know, another interesting area that you have have worked in is in Botox therapy for temporal mandibular disorders, and kind of like bruxism, Botox is a big uh, item of discussion in dentistry and in the orofacial pain world. Right. Oh um, yeah. I, I, and, and my sense is that the opinions about Botox run the gamut. There's a wide spectrum of uh, expert opinion on whether it is in fact effective or not. Uh, I, I think you know a, a lot of us would love to see Botox be an effective treatment. I, I would love to see Botox be an effective treatment, see, see hard data supporting that. Um, but another way to, to, I guess, look at that is maybe we're not certain based on our data, whether Botox is efficacious, but are we hurting anyone by doing it? And at least one of your studies has looked into that in the form of, uh, or with the question of bone density and propensity for osteopenia. So I'm thinking of of, of a 2014 publication comparing radiographic findings of a group of patients, or a relatively small sample size, but a group who had received okay. Botox and, and a group who didn't. And there were some rather striking differences in those findings, as I recall. Right. But I'm going to put those findings away for a minute because we have newer data that were just accepted for publication last oh. week. Okay. Oh, all <laughs> right. Surprise. Okay. okay. That, that was a very small study, and that was based upon um, judgments by um, expert oral radiologists who work in osteoporosis and osteopenia, all right? And, you know, we, we the very, very small studies, they had great agreement and it looked like they saw more osteopenia in the people who had lots of uh, Botox injections versus those that didn't, okay? Uh, but we started to think about doing a clinical trial, a larger scale clinical trial of Botox, uh, because many of the existing studies that were out there, again, were confusing, kind of 
like the way things are confusing for um, even flat plane splints, where you sort of see some studies that support their use, some studies that don't. Uh, in general, if you see, you know, high-level Cochrane-type reviews, they say, you know, the evidence just isn't really there to support their broad-based use. And most uh, orphans or facial pain specialists I've met that sort of say, well, they don't hurt. So, you know, it, it can be something that we try. And if it doesn't work, we stop using it. Um, well, given the cost, I might disagree with that to some degree. But um, with Botox, I think the issues are particularly important in that we first do no harm. And Again, when you recognize that Botox is the most powerful neurotoxin known to humankind, we have to first make sure that it's safe. And if you speak to individuals who have had Botox treatment, you actually, about two weeks afterwards, have sort of flu-like reactions Um, You don't feel very good. And then there are a couple of studies, which are case reports, which report, and they actually have pre-post where people were given huge injections of Botox bilaterally, and basically they just melted away the condyles. You know, unbelievable. Um, But it's nothing people would traditionally do unless they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, But we did a study and it was very, very difficult. I never want to do the study again, um, in which we uh, attempted to using uh, a community network of orofacial pain specialists who agreed at the start of the study. uh, And these are uh, clinicians uh, in the New York area who used Botox to treat at least some of their TMD patients um, to let us, um, uh, to ask these patients whether they would be willing to be considered for inclusion in a study uh, with no obligation, uh, and as well as for them to ask a group of similar patients who they thought might be eligible for Botox but hadn't taken it, Uh, or hadn't used it, and we would recruit those individuals as well. I think we started off uh, estimating that we would end up with, oh, geez, uh, even if we had, you know, only 20% agreement, we'd end up with, you know, 150 people who had uh, received Botox uh, two or more times, or three or more times during the past year, and you know, many, many more uh, people who hadn't received Botox or who had TMD. Uh, funny that once we started the study and went back to these clinicians, suddenly they didn't want to participate anymore. Um, maybe there was a little conflict of interest uh, when they realized, and I know that Allergan kept meeting with me you know, manufacturer of Botox for every use under the planet. Um, They kept wanting to know what we were doing from the very beginning. Um, And, you know, 
we're very, very concerned. And of course, uh, for for those uh, in AOP who do use Botox injections, you know that you've got your 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 gold status and your whatever level of status uh, uh, Botox user kind of ratings. And we were probably hitting uh, initially some of those high high volume Botox users uh, in our sample. Uh, and then they didn't want to participate. Uh, I don't know that Allergan said anything to them, but I'm sure that Allergan was would rather not have negative data published. And in fact, one one of the clinicians actually said to us, if we had shown even you know a moderate uh, bone loss through unloading of the TMJ complex bones through uh, disuse osteopenia, basically. You stop, you know, muscle remodel, I mean, bone remodeling requires muscle tension. We, uh, Botox causes uh, a uh, paresis, which reduces that muscle tension and reduces uh, muscle, uh, muscle loading on bone. Uh, that that actually is in animal studies is is used uh, as the the model for uh, experimental osteopenia in rodents. Okay, so but anyway, uh, we finally managed through a lot of effort to recruit fewer individuals than we had hoped, and. We found some effects that were significant, not at a group level, but at a dose level. In other words, within the group of individuals who had received Botox, there are a couple of significant relationships in certain muscle sites. This is using cone beam CT and looking at grayscale values uh, as a proxy measure for bone density. And we used uh, standardized phantoms on the face to uh, improve the reliability of cone beam CT. I mean, this will be out in, in Journal of oral, oral Rehabilitation in the next few months if people want the methodologic details. But we, we did as, as well as I think anyone has so far since you can't really use uh, standard uh, 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 CT and expose people to so much radiation uh, for uh, for something uh, that they're not going to directly benefit from. Uh, but using cone beam CT with some adjustments we, with standard phantoms, we found that there were some reductions as expected in bone volume in certain areas, right? Particularly in the uh, trabecular bone of the condyle, which would be really the first area in which you would expect to see changes. Now, these were not huge effects. I will start off by saying that, okay? But one thing that we really emphasize in this manuscript is that I'm really not concerned over a TMD patient, assuming this stuff works, all right, and I know that actually Allergan had uh, done a study and not submitted it originally um, 
to the FDA because they didn't find a significant effect. But maybe this time the study was bigger. Maybe they used more stringent criteria. I know that there's a study now um, that at least it's listed on uh, clinicaltrials.gov, which is a website in which all clinical trials uh, in process uh, or planned need to be posted. Okay, Allegan has a study posted there. So the assumption is that they are trying to see whether they can get approval from the FDA if these results are positive to have it be an indication, uh, have TMD be, be an approved indication for using Botox. And my concern is that if this happens, what do we really know about the long-term risk to bone? This stuff wears off in about three months. So the pattern of typical treatment, if people can afford it, which is more likely to be affordable if it's an approved indication, is about every three months you go back and get retreated, okay? Three to four months. People don't do that too often now unless they're incredibly wealthy. It's gonna be different if it's covered by insurance. So we propose that what is really needed is what I call a phase four study in which after a drug or a, a, a toxin in this case is approved, we study long-term outcome. So we need to really start and look at what happens after a year or two of regular treatment. That's the only way we're really gonna get an answer. Yeah, we thought, you know, even a clinical trial, even if we could do two or three cycles, that doesn't necessarily re reflect what's gonna happen in clinical practice, okay, if Botox is approved. So I wish I had the answer now, but I could only say that I would hope that they would really work to find the minimal effective dose until we understand more about the potential negative effects of Botox. Uh, and it's not apparently just uh, the uh, unloading of the muscle on the joint. Apparently there's some basic science findings from mice that suggests that Botox, um, geez, I'm not a basic scientist, but that Botox uh, affects the level of a particular, I think it's, uh, it affects the level of, hold on a second, let's see if I can find it, of, uh, no, I can't, of, of something called rankle, but it has to do with um, how uh, bone remodels uh, at a basic science level. And so Botox at, may have a direct effect on bone uh, in terms of affecting the remodeling process, in addition to its effect on muscle, which affects the remodeling process. Um, and I also have a concern, which we really haven't addressed, which is studies that have shown fatty infiltrates into the muscle uh, after Botox treatment. And those fatty infiltrates, you know, maybe are helpful to the extent they, they decrease the ability of the muscle to exert force, okay? But they're essentially damaged to the muscle. 
So I have a number of concerns that our data so far have not been able to address and I think really need to be addressed by large-scale studies. But we should, if this is approved, and I know many people want it approved because we want something, if it helps people, and we have very few options of things that can help people, okay, fine, but caution. Please caution, because first do no harm, and we don't know the extent of potential harm from Botox. All right, so, uh, you know, I, I approach this with um, a lot of concern about this being a potentially approved indication. So that's, I hope that's helpful a little bit. I, don't, I wish I had all the answers, and I don't. Well, we, we hope you find all the answers before too long. That, that okay. would be great. <laughs> okay. You know, one of the uh, take-home messages that I, I hear as I read uh, your studies and listen to you speak about them is, is this the need for uh, openness and, and a good dose of humility in approaching these conditions. Um, you know, they are certainly very complicated. And uh, it, it, it brings me to wonder, from your perspective, as someone who has approached this from uh, a research and an epidemiology and a data perspective, uh, what is the place of clinical observation in helping to understand pain disorders? Uh, certainly, if we buy into our own perspective too much, we can become rigid and, and dogmatic and, and perhaps uh, uh, posit some relationships that don't exist. But uh, I wonder, from your perspective, what, what does clinical observation bring uh, to understanding these problems? I think clinical observation is the place you start, but don't end. Okay, Clinical observation is essential for hypothesis generation. But then I think, as I, Joe Marbach and I, I think, had the rare but ideal collaboration for a dozen years in which we had an experienced research scientist as well as a clinician who was a careful observer who teamed up together and worked so that hypotheses could be evaluated. And the clinician was also open-minded enough so that if the data did not fit the hypothesis, they could work together to publish a paper that said, well, we thought it was going to be this way, but it wasn't. That's what I would hope we'd see more of, more of those teams of individuals working together because, you know, I don't see patients the same volume and in the same way as the orofacial pain specialist, but I have a set of skills that many orofacial pain specialists don't. So I think teams, team collaboration is really the way to work because the hypotheses are really going to come in large part out of the orofacial pain experts based upon their clinical observations, but they always need to have that sense of humility in recognizing that they're going to have this clinician's illusion and biased sample and not be able to necessarily uh, tell what's cause and what's effect, let's say, in terms of psychological symptoms and things like that. So humility and caution is important. Uh, and I know it's hard because dentistry and orofacial pain, I mean, it's largely an apprenticeship model. You're not trained in research methods. Um, so try to maintain a little open-mindedness 
about what your what your teachers taught you because they weren't trained in research methods either. Uh, and I know it's hard to say read, but at least read the review papers to see what's out there and maybe that'll be a little helpful. Um, and I do think that we're a far distance from what I think the AOP is called the age of enlightenment or something like that with treatments. I think we've got a ways to go because we really don't have terribly effective treatment to offer this subset of chronic pain patients who end up in the waiting rooms and in the, in the chair. Um, but what we can offer number one, which can be terribly important, is education to patients. That's number one. For patients to be told what you have is real, not terribly uncommon, usually, but not always, goes away unexpectedly um, with no specific pattern. And so that's what you hope for. And let's learn to relax your jaw. That goes pretty far. And it's unbelievable how many patients are really reassured by that advice. And I would hope that that is the first step that every orofacial pain clinician takes before they start doing cone beams and a thousand and one other things that cost an awful lot of money, even oral appliances, because they're not clearly effective. Um, and it's not, to me, satisfactory to say, well, some people get helped by them, some people don't. Maybe that means it's just all chance and it's spontaneous remission, which seems to happen an awful lot of the time. So we really need to be modest in our assumptions. And I also think it, as... Um, I implied before that uh, bruxism is not a disorder to be treated. It is a potential risk factor. And if you see wear patterns on the teeth, don't assume that the individual bruxes and don't assume that it has anything to do with their oral facial pain. Uh, don't assume that the patient's distress is a cause of their TMD problem. And do less, not more. Okay, so I would say that those are probably the main points that I would want to communicate. Okay. Dr. Karen Raphael is professor at New York University College of Dentistry. Karen, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for your, your dedication, for your research, and for sharing your insights today on the AAOP podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And same here. Thanks very much for having me.